0: But the reality is that scripture, again, goes to great lengths to tell us over and over again that he understands the things we face in the real world. The authors of of the gospels, the authors of the epistles in the New Testament, they knew this would be important. They wanted to communicate this because they knew it would be important as we relate to God, as we come before God, as we can have a relationship with him, what that looks like. Jesus understands when we're tempted what we feel right not when we sin because sin and temptation are vastly different things but he understands when we're tempted he understands when we suffer the pain of betrayal he knows what it means to be tired and overwhelmed and maxed out now i know he was never married and he did not have kids so that's a little bit of a different thing right but other than that he bore obviously incredible burdens He understands what it's like. His thirst on the cross assures us that he knows what we're experiencing today. It's an indicator of his humanity that he had to go through a lot and he didn't have some sort of divine force field around him, right? That protected him from all the hits. He took the hits and he felt the hits. He wasn't a machine was a man. Since the advent of the motion picture of cinema there have been literally probably hundreds of phenomenal Movies made, movies that have garnered many, many Oscar nominations of one, many, many Oscars, films that have depicted uh, powerful historical events, you know, stories of triumph over tragedy, uh, you know, victory when it seemed like defeat was inevitable. There have been lots of movies that, are, you know, tug at your heartstrings that bring you uh, to tears. Uh, At the end of them, for lots of different ways, it made you laugh so hard, maybe, that your stomach is hurt and you've ended up in tears. I know I've had a few like that. And if I asked you to name, no matter how old you are, if I asked you to name a a small handful, three, four, of your favorite movies, you probably have no difficulty doing so. Uh, Maybe you're even thinking about them right now. But in all the years of film history, of all the phenomenal films that have existed, and all the deep, very poignant, you know, intense films... Maybe uh, there's one in my mind that stands near the top above all the rest, and that's Rocky Four. It's Rocky Four. And Rocky Four, if you don't know, is one of the great stories ever, right? It was released when I was eight years old in 85, 86, something like that, is when it came out, right at the height of the Cold War. And it features, you know, a battle uh, of attrition between the U.S. And, and communist Russia, you know. And you know the story if you've, you've probably seen it. It's a movie that I've seen more times than I've ever seen any other movie. This is because it came out when I was eight and I saw it. My mom was a huge fan of the Rocky movies and showed us uh, that film within my neighbor, directly across the street from us uh, where I grew up, owned a coveted VHS copy of this movie, And so there was a summer where I literally, I think we, no joke, watched it virtually every day. It got to the point where at a very young age, and I've always had a good memory and a good ability to memorize things, but I could cite every word beginning to end, including the songs and the Russian parts. So I still speak no Russian, but I can tell you what Yasubya, ya ya means. So uh, you can ask me afterward, but the story, right, goes that you know this Russian boxer, Captain Ivan Drago, right, comes over from Russia, and Apollo Creed, who's kind of you know uh, retired and has lost his title to Rocky, he feels like it's his job, you know, to to go and really show this Russian about American boxing. It doesn't end well, no spoilers, uh, but it doesn't really end well. We'll just put it that way. And Rocky feels like he needs to avenge his friend, and so he decides he'll take this fight on Christmas Day in Russia. Right? And he goes to this remote area, like basically Siberia, and he asks, you know, basically they just give him some logs to train with, uh, and that's about it. And it features lots of scenes where Sylvester Stallone is completely oiled up and just jacked, and he's like lifting, you know, carts with people in them, and every muscle's flexing, and he, he grows a beard. I mean, honestly, it's so iconic. Like, it's incredible, right? And so I I literally like got to the point where I would like strap a backpack on my back and load it with bricks and run down my street just to like, you know, get faster and tougher. It was crazy. but, And so he goes against this guy, though, that's seemingly invincible, right? They show the scenes where he's punching into the measuring thing, and it shows he's got way more pounds of pressure per square inch than any heavyweight in history, you know, all this kind of stuff. And Rocky knows he's in for the, the fight of his life. And so The fight starts, and everything's against Rocky, basically, and the fight starts, and it basically goes the way that, you know, it seemed like it would go in terms of Drago comes out and just starts pummeling Rocky into a pulp, right? And so that's how the first round goes, and it goes like that. But then there's this scene that still to this day is 2023. Lincoln and I watched this just a few months ago, uh, and it still gives me chills every time I watch it. I don't know how many times it's been, but a lot. Still gives me chills where Rocky's just getting pummeled. He's just getting pummeled, you know? And at one point, the Russian is, like, grabbed him by the throat and, like, all this stuff. But they go into this corner, and there's this sort of, like, scrap, right? There's this little scrap in the corner. And all of a sudden, Rocky just lands, like, a right, and it hits the Russian right above here. And the announcers say, he's cut. Anybody know it? Like, he's cut. The Russian is, you can say it with me, the Russian is cut, and it's a bad cut. And now it's Rocky Balboa coming after Ivan Drago. And then they start, and Rocky comes out, and he just starts... And you know, it's got this big cut, you know, and then the Russian comes back, but at the end, Rocky actually picks up the Russian, so like reverses it and like throws him, you know, and all this stuff, and they come back to their corners, right? The, the bell rings, they come back to their corners, and the guy who was Apollo's trainer, right, is now Rocky's trainer, and he's in Rocky's face, right? And they're, they're putting the water on him, and what does he say to him, right? Does anybody remember this? He says, you heard him. He's not a machine. He's a man, He's not a machine, he's a man, right? And in that moment, it's like a switch flips and Rocky and all of us too, right? They take us along for the ride. We realize this guy's not invincible. This guy is human, Just like every other boxer, he's been cut, he's bleeding. And the film actually does a great job of being, as it goes, sympathetic to Drago as you go because you start to see the humanity in him begin to come out. You start to see the disappointment of the Russian officials and the government, and you start to see him realize, like, you know, he's giving Rocky credit. And there's a whole thing there that I won't go into. But remember that line, okay? He's not a machine. He's a man. You heard him. He's cut. Right? We're in this series, it's a series in, in Lent, and I know we don't talk about Lent a lot around here because we're not a mainline denomination, but Lent is still an incredibly important season that leads us in preparation for Easter up to Holy Week. And as a way to sort of do that, we obviously have a good Friday service that we'll have that week, but we've also chosen a series uh, of called Famous Last Words, the seven statements that Jesus makes for, From the cross, and we're spending seven weeks systematically going through those in order, in the order they appear in the gospels, so best we can discern, because there are different ones appear in different gospels. And we're talking about each one of those. And this morning we're continuing in that series. We're now in week five, and the fifth recorded phrase from Jesus' Passion is found only in the Gospel of John. So not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in Luke. Only in the gospel of John does this phrase appear, and it's found in chapter 19, verse 28. Now, the King James Version, which I'm not gonna put on the screen, but it reads simply, I thirst. Jesus says, I thirst, which if you look it up, the way that Jesus would have spoken, it was actually just one word that he would have spoken to indicate, I thirst. But the NIV translates a little bit better, and it reads like this, John 19, 28 through 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. I am thirsty. Now, what I don't want to do over the next 30 minutes is try to extrapolate meaning from this statement that doesn't really exist. And I don't want to try to allegorize it in some way that preachers are prone to doing, right? I don't want to do any of that. I want to focus on the reality of what this statement says, the straightforward, right, reality of what this statement communicates. I want to focus on the importance of the glaringly obvious. Jesus said he was thirsty, Why did Jesus say that he was thirsty? This is not a trick question. He said he was thirsty because he was thirsty. The fact that he made this statement is important for multiple reasons. John's intentional about his inclusion of it, and he'll name one of the reasons for which he included it, and we'll get to that in just a bit. But first, let's look at another profound reality that this statement communicates. Here's the first truth for this morning. We've got several that were used. This first truth is I am thirsty reveals fundamentally the humanity of Jesus. I'm not gonna keep you waiting to link you back to the Rocky Four story, right? He's not a machine. He's a man. And we're gonna dive deeper into that here. See, during the first few centuries of the church, as they were trying to figure out a lot of things Theologically, you see, because you had many people who had come to Jesus who had a history of being Jewish and the nation of Israel, and they understood the Old Testament and the Torah and the prophecies and a lot of theology, and they understood in many ways how Jesus was the Jewish Messiah first and foremost and how he fit into this sort of puzzle and sort of completed it. But then you had many people, Gentiles was the generic term, pagans, non Jews, whatever you want to call them, who were coming to Jesus, who had no background in any of this stuff. They were just told that there was this guy named Jesus. And he was God in the flesh, and he is our way to salvation, and he has died for your sins. And they were accepting Jesus, but they had no foundations other than their pagan religions. So you had many people come into Christ in the proverbial melting pot of theology and beliefs and philosophies and understandings of Scripture or the lack thereof. And you had these people trying to sort of figure out and come together on Like, what's the story here? What can we agree on so that we have a standard that's set? And it's good for churches to do this, and it was good that the early church did this and established creeds that we still live by to this day, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and there are some others as well. That's important because it sets base level, baseline standards for our faith, right? We talked about this in youth group at the beginning of our last semester when we had a series on just what does it mean to be a Christian, right, intro to Christianity. We read the Apostles' Creed, and I told the kids straight away, I said, look, if you disagree, fundamentally with any of these things in the apostles creed that's fine what that means though is you're not a christian because these are the things that for two thousand years the church has said you have to believe in these things to be able to say to believe in jesus right so the early church wrestled with this we're the beneficiaries of that stuff and we're grateful for it but during the first few centuries of the church, there were serious arguments among different people concerning the nature of Jesus. Was he God disguised as a man? Right? What I mean is if he was, if he was God disguised as a man, like, this was, these were serious arguments. Did he really feel pain on the cross? Was he really tempted like us? You know, does he really know what it's like to be a human being or was it some sort of like divine shell game, right, where he he became flesh, but he had this sort of resistance to the humanity that we all sort of experience, not sort of, that we experience intensely, right, the vulnerability that we experience. Well, the answer, right, from the early church was a resounding yes, and that he is really, right, a man. That he really did know what it felt like to be a human being. That he really felt pain on the cross. And a big indicator, a key to this understanding, this agreement they came to, is from this text in John 19, where Jesus says, I'm thirsty. I am thirsty. The reality is that God incarnate. The creator God of the universe, the word made flesh in whom all things were created for and through and are still held together and sustained. God wanted and needed, needed something to drink. Why is that important? First of all, means we can believe what the early church councils clarified for us, that Jesus Christ is fully God, and Jesus Christ is fully man. He's not 50-50. We tend to think about it that way sometimes, that he's half God and half man, and that's not what, what the reality is. That's not what scriptures communicate. That's not what the early church has passed down to us. Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man. Neither his divinity nor his humanity are in any way diminished by the other. We could go deep into that. We're not going to do that a ton this morning. But why is it important? Why is it important for us to know and understand and believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man and neither diminishes the other and he's not 50-50? Well, there's a couple reasons. As a quick aside, one of the reasons is because although Jesus was indeed a man, and that's what we're going to focus on today and hold that thought, he's also God, right? Right? He's also God. We know and believe that he was not a machine, that he is a man, and he can be cut, and he can be bruised, and he can be broken, and he can be thirsty, right? We hold that over here. We're going to talk about that again this morning, but we also have to hold in that same, like, you know, grasp this truth that he is fully God. He wasn't just some good teacher, right? that walked the earth. And that's the claim that you hear probably more frequently than any other claim today uh, but from people who know literally nothing about Jesus, right? They will dismiss Jesus or sort of discard him casually by saying that they probably believe, right, that he existed. There's mountains of historical evidence, including from non-Christian writers, that Jesus was an actual person who lived in an actual place in a time in history, right? So they can acknowledge that on some level, but they'll quickly just cast him aside by saying, "Well, he was just a good teacher." And that sounds fine to most people's ears because they don't really want to go any deeper, but to me it drives me up a wall, it makes me want to punch a wall sometimes because it's so ridiculous. Because he was if he was not a good teacher in any way shape or form if you actually read his teachings. We wouldn't call somebody a good teacher if they continually claim to be God. Right, we, we addressed that in our series a, a while back, the I Am series. We, we examined the eight I Am statements of Jesus and the significance of those statements, claiming that he was God. Right? How many people, if they got on television now, and they had some good teachings about some basic morality and some basic ethics and some things that we thought, like, that's not bad. And they seemed like they had a little bit of knowledge and wisdom. But then, the majority of the time, they actually claimed that they were God. And that before Abraham existed, they existed, and that the foundations of the world were laid upon them, and that they received praise as God. So they didn't just make the claim, but they had a group of followers that said, this guy is God, he is God, and they worship him, and he receives it that way. We would not think that person is a good teacher. We'd think they were bonkers. We would think they were crazy, Right? We would think that they were out of their mind, and we would instantly be like, well, it's cool to have some good ethical and moral and virtuous teaching, but, like, look, that's not, a, that's not a big deal. Lots of people do that, right? No, Jesus claimed to be God. The early church said we know, right? He is God, and he is man. He is, as John says so beautifully in his, the opening to his gospel, in the beginning was the word. It's all caps, which indicates God, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. It's important to understand that he is both God and man, man and God, because people will say, well, we believe he was a man, right? But he was just a good teacher. We have to understand from an apologetic standpoint how to be able to say, guys, that's nonsense, and I'm sorry you think that, but that's just not the case. So that's that part. On the other side, Scripture states repeatedly, and it actually goes to great lengths and places heavy emphasis on the fact that Jesus was human and fully human at that. There are actually statements that talk about Jesus emptying self. It's a a word called kenosis, and it's the word It comes from Philippians 2 where it talks about Jesus emptying himself. It's the scripture where it says that Jesus being in his very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the nature of a servant and became obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. That whole text is summed up by this idea of kenosis that Jesus had to on some level, right, to become human, right? He had to allow himself to be on some level, right, changed a little bit and enter into Mary's womb and be born as a baby, and experience all that we experience. So here's a huge truth for this morning. And this is something that I guess I wish, if, you know, looking back on my Christian walk, that I wish I would have been taught more about. It was so painfully obvious to me as I read through scripture as a new Christian, but it was something I didn't see talked about a lot. And I think it would have helped me immensely. So maybe if you're in that spot today, it'll help you. But here's a truth regarding the humanity of Jesus. It's Jesus being fully human, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. That's a scripture. He obeyed his parents. We're told that he was he did that. He asked questions. He grew weary. He grew angry. He got hungry. He slept. He needed rest. He marveled. We're told a couple of times he was actually semi-cut off guard in scripture. He wept. He groaned. He prayed. And he grew thirsty. Think about that for a second. He was fully human. He experienced all those things. Now, we don't know we know very little. We have one story, basically, of the first 33-ish years of Jesus' life. I know most people think that it was at 30 when he began his ministry. It was actually probably that he was closer to 33. So for the first 33 years of his life, we don't know much other than one story from when he was 12 years old. So we have to kind of imagine or it. and people don't like to think about this stuff, but the reality was that like Jesus had to have his diaper changed when he was little. Jesus who knows, but he was a rough and tumble boy, probably like all the other boys who went out and played and did all kinds of things, and he may have broken a bone. He may have had injuries. He got hurt probably as a kid, right? No kid comes through completely unscathed unless you put them in a bubble. They're going to come through very, very uh, distraught after that. That was not good, right? But Jesus had all this. The Chosen does a great job of communicating this in an episode, I think it was in this last season, season three, where Jesus is kind of playing this like sport. Like they have this big get together and Jesus is playing this sport with some of his friends and he's not very good at it. Like he's not very, as good as they are. And they kind of make fun of him for not being super athletic, right? And that's, we feel like, oh, that's blasphemy. You're like, why? He was a a dude and he wasn't just necessarily the best athlete too, right? That's not how it was. He was not a machine. He was a man. He grew in wisdom and stature. He obeyed his parents. He asked questions. He grew weary, angry. We see these things, right? He got frustrated. He got tired. He needed to sleep. He rested. He marveled. He wept. He groaned. He prayed. All those things. Another truth. This is another key. As a man, Jesus experienced everything we experience, yet he was without sin. What this means is he understands the things we face in the real world. This is stuff, again, that I wish I would have been taught earlier on, because Jesus still existed for for me sort of abstractly and sort of mystically in this area where it's like, yeah, it's Jesus, and yeah, he was God, and he came down, he died on the cross, but like, it's Jesus, you know, and the scripture tells me I'm supposed to live like Jesus and I'm being transformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. But how is that even possible? Because he was God and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But the reality is that scripture, again, goes to great lengths to tell us over and over again that he understands the things we face in the real world. The authors of, of the gospels, the authors of the epistles in the New Testament, they knew this would be important. They wanted to communicate this because they knew it would be important as we relate to God, as we come before God, as we can have a relationship with him, what that looks like. Jesus understands when we're tempted, what we feel, right? Not when we sin, because sin and temptation are vastly different things, but he understands when we're tempted. He understands when we suffer the pain of betrayal. He knows what it means to be tired and overwhelmed and maxed out. Now I know he was never married and he did not have kids, so that's a little bit of a different thing, right? But other than that, he bore obviously incredible burdens. He understands what it's like. His thirst on the cross assures us that he knows what we're experiencing today. It's an indicator of his humanity that he had to go through a lot. And he didn't have some sort of divine force field around him, right, that protected him from all the hits. He took the hits, and he felt the hits. He wasn't a machine. He was a man. The writer of Hebrews actually uses this as an encouragement to us. Hebrews is a phenomenal book. The writer of Hebrews encourages us this fact in chapter 4 saying this. For we do not have a high priest. So a high priest back then was the person who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to sort of, you know, expunge their sins, to make them right, to atone for their sins. Jesus becomes the perfect high priest now, so we no longer have to offer animal sacrifices. I just wanted to make a note. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. We do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weakness. Note the word choice here. We do not have a high priest who is unable to what? Empathize. You know the difference between sympathize and empathize, right? Sympathize is mostly theoretical. It's if you're going through something, and I've never gone through it, but I understand intellectually that that's probably difficult for you on a mental, emotional level. And so I can offer my sympathy to you, even though I've never experienced it. Empathy is different. Empathy is where you're going through some sort of pain, trauma in your life, and I've gone through an identical pain and trauma, or at least one that's within inches, metaphorically speaking, of that. And so I don't have to just theorize about what you feel like, I can know. I know because I myself experienced that pain, that trauma, that loss, that betrayal, that thing. And so I can actually come alongside of you in a way, if I'm willing to do so, I can actually come alongside of you in a way that somebody who can only sympathize cannot do. So isn't it interesting that the author of Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest who is unable to I'm sorry, empathize with our weakness. He doesn't say sympathize. He says empathize. What does that mean, that he has walked through the same sort of thing? But we have one, and he clarifies here, who has been tempted in every way, just again, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So then, this is the encouragement part. Because of this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What does this mean? on a deep, this is such a profoundly deep thing. If we can grasp it, and it's this, it's because Jesus can empathize because he was tempted in every way we are but did not sin. When we sin, when we mess up, when we are in need of God's grace and his mercy, when we, you know, have stumbled into our flesh, when our humanity has showed up in ways we didn't really want it to, we don't have to view God as somehow so distant and so holy and so other that we can't even approach him and ask for forgiveness because we're so little and we're so, we should be so ashamed, right, right? And so feel so terrible about what we've done. We can't imagine, we can't believe that we did this. No, instead, in the midst of all that stuff that we all stumble into in life, we can actually have confidence. Isn't that interesting? That when we have it, we shouldn't have shame, right? There's a time for healthy guilt, but we shouldn't have shame, right? We shouldn't have fear. We shouldn't have those things. We can actually come boldly before God and And in the name of Jesus, say, Jesus, you know the weakness that I've been experiencing, and you know how hard it's been, and I have failed, and I need your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. And we can be confident that he can empathize with us, and he says, I know my child. I know my son. I know my daughter. And it's hard down there. And I see that you're doing your best. Yeah, you made a mistake, but you're forgiven You have grace, let's move on. But I know what it's like, and I will give you strength to carry on and to push through, right? What keeps us from doing this sometimes is we feel like we've let him down so much that we can't possibly go or that he just doesn't understand. And this is what the author of Hebrews wants to make sure we know is that he does. We go to him with confidence that he wants to help us in our time of need. He understands all we face, all that we have to bear. So that's that part of it, and we're gonna keep going. John also saw this statement, I am thirsty, as a fulfillment of yet another of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah that were fulfilled by Jesus. There were right around 400 prophecies from the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them, as many as he could fulfill in his lifetime, and there are a few that he will fulfill in his second coming. And John sees it in that light, John 19, 28, to revisit it. John says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, if you read this kind of at surface level, it almost sounds like John is basically saying, like, Jesus realized that there was a scripture, a prophecy that still needed to be fulfilled, and so even though he may or may not have been thirsty, he made sure to say, I'm thirsty, right? Just to like check the box, just to make sure he didn't miss one, right? It almost sounds like that, but we have to understand that I am thirsty wasn't just some sort of like perfunctory statement that Jesus made just to check a box, right? It's not what it was at all. Rather, it reveals the extent of his suffering, what he was going through. Jesus wasn't acting. He wasn't playing a role. He wasn't speaking some line, right? Keep in mind, if you think about this, what's happened to Jesus up to this point when he speaks this phrase, this series of words, I am thirsty. Let's remember what he's gone through. After eating the Passover meal with his disciples, we know that he leaves the upper room and he walks out through the city of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, to a place that we know called the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he's in the garden, it's late, and he asks his disciples that they will stay awake and pray with him through the night. Now they're unable to do so. But Jesus, we're told, prays so intensely in such great agony that he literally begins to sweat blood, which means the capillaries under his skin burst out of extreme pain, extreme, extreme strain, excuse me. It says, in being in great agony, Jesus prayed intensely. Now, let's not forget that Jesus knew from a very early on, we'll say, time in his life that his destiny was to go to the cross, to be, right, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He predicted it himself many times throughout his ministry. I'm always headed to Jerusalem. This is how it's gonna end for me. This is how it's gonna end for me. And yet, when the moment comes, when we're on the precipice of this fulfillment, what do we see him doing? We see him begging God three times to get out of it. To me, that's an incredible, incredible testament to his humanity. And I don't know about you, but it's one of the things for me that's tethered me all these years when I've had times of great strain in my life, of anxiety, right? Of difficulty. And I wonder, can Jesus relate? And then I realized, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, by modern standards, basically was having a panic attack. He was asking if there's, he said, if there's any other way. Think about this. His whole life, he'd known he was gonna do this. Now, the moment's come, if there's any other way. And it's not like he was casually asking it again, like, oh, I know there's not, but I'm just going to ask it for the benefit of who knows what. No, he asks it so intensely that his capillaries burst. This is the phenomenon that we know has happened a handful of times in history, in modern history only, when astronauts are shot into space. The strain on their bodies and the g-forces of gravity pushing back strains so intensely that they will actually have capillaries burst and their sweat will actually have blood in it. It's not just pure blood. right? don't think of it that way. But it is sweat that has blood in it. That's the level of strain. An astronaut, right, being shot into space, the G-forces, the gravitational pull pushing back on them. That's the kind of strain Jesus was under. He's not a machine. He's a man. After that, he's then arrested in the garden after being betrayed by one of his closest friends, and let's not think that Jesus, you know, didn't love Judas or didn't, you know, care for him. It was a big deal. Then he was taken to Caiaphas's house, he was tried and condemned. Then he was taken to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate, and in between all this, he's beaten, he's scourged, he's mocked by the Romans, and then finally, he's forced to carry a very heavy cross to Golgotha, right? And at that point, he's so weak, we know that somebody else, right, had to carry his cross for him. He was that weak. And finally, once he gets to Golgotha, he's nailed to that cross and he's crucified. And then in all this time, it's been many, many, many hours since that Passover meal, and he's likely had nothing to eat or drink in all that time. His body is exhausted. He is in complete agony. He's lost a great deal of blood by this time. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that Jesus actually died of something known as hypovolemic shock, which is complete and total blood loss. If you didn't know this, there's a statement in the scriptures that says that the Roman centurions, the soldiers who did this basically on a regular basis were actually surprised and shocked by how quickly Jesus died. Most people, the average person who was being crucified would sometimes hang up there for two or three days. It's what made this such an unbelievably awful torture. And they did this, right, to discourage rebellions. So they were blown away that Jesus, after only six hours, that's how badly beaten, how much blood he had lost, how completely destroyed he was. And he's dehydrated, right? You lose blood, you're dehydrated. He's had nothing to eat or drink. He's now been hanging on the cross for six hours at this point. His muscles are contracting. They're seizing up. Let's not forget something else, that earlier he actually refuses a drink that they offer him early on. But this Roman soldiers offered him a drink, and he refused that. Why? Because the drink they offered him different translations say different things, but some say basically wine mixed with gall. What was gall? Gall is basically modern day morphine. Name your painkiller, your strong painkiller. That's what that was, and Jesus refuses it. He says, no, thank you, right? He doesn't want anything to dull the pain, to dull his senses. He wants to have his head clear. So he's refused that. So he's in full suffering here. This was, most of the people that were being crucified took this gladly, and wouldn't you? Absolutely, right? I would take it in a heartbeat. I am thirsty wasn't just some sort of like artificial cry just to fulfill an ancient prophecy. It was an authentic statement of need. Arthur Pink, the Bible scholar, says this regarding Jesus and the crucifixion. His whole body racked with pain. His mouth parched. He cries, I am thirsty, it was not an appeal for pity, nor a request for the alleviation of his sufferings. It gave expression to the intensity of the agonies he was undergoing. Okay. That's the humanity part. He's not a machine. He was a man. And as a man, he understands he can empathize, but he's still God. He's our high priest. But we can So we can approach him with confidence in our time of need. There's such a beauty in that. Like, Such a beauty in that. That said, though, the statement does indeed fulfill a couple of ancient prophecies concerning the Messiah, and I want to share those with you because they're important. The first of which is found in Psalm 22, and it gives us the picture of a man who was totally spent. This is a psalm of David that he wrote, and it also has a messianic prophecy in it. It says this in 14 through 15, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. It's this thing in its entirety, but especially that last phrase that the ancient Israelites knew was about the Messiah. My strength is dried up like a potsherd in my tongue, six to the roof of my mouth. This is the description of someone who's been emptied of everything. Jesus has poured himself out for us. There's nothing left of himself to give. That's the first one, Psalm 22. And in Psalm 69, there's another one. Psalm 69, 16 through 21. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned and disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. And here's the part. They put what? What did I say? They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Think about this, written so many centuries before the crucifixion. It's like I always say, you cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. It's sort of in vogue to ignore the Old Testament, but man, you miss out on most of the richness and the depth of the New Testament if you don't at least have a cursory understanding of things like this. This is powerful to me when you read this specific thing Right, written centuries before. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. When Jesus said, I am thirsty, it was an expression of just how emptied out he was. His strength was dried up, as the psalmist says. He had given everything for us. I'm getting closer here. It's quite appropriate as we transition just a little bit that John is the only one of the Gospel writers who tells us that Jesus was thirsty. Because it's also John's Gospel that has given us the image of Jesus as living water. Nowhere else in the Gospels do the living water statements make it in. It's just in the Gospel of John, which is interesting. The first one of these is in John four, where Jesus has a now famous encounter with a woman at the well in Samaria, and he asks her for a drink from the well. And then she questions him as to why that he, a Jew and a male, would ask her, a Samaritan female, for a drink since they did not associate with each other. And Jesus responds, again famously, in John 4, verse 10, and he says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you a living water. See, the reality is that our need, our thirst for water is universal. You can go many days without food, but you can only go, they say, about seven days without water. Our thirst for water is universal. All of us will perish without water, but there's something deeper, something more for which all of us thirst. And our need goes beyond just physical water to that need in our soul, and it's need for forgiveness, for love, for meaning, for purpose in our life. The truth is that all of humanity, all of us are searching, desiring to quench a universal thirst. And we need the only thing that will quench that, which is living water. We are universally thirsty and our thirst can only be satisfied when we come to Jesus. St. Augustine says this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, I love this, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Just, that's a great, great line. If you take nothing else from today, let it be that. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who's believed to be Solomon among others, says that God has planted eternity in the human heart. So the reason that temporal things will never satisfy us is because they were never intended to, because we are not temporal beings. C.S. Lewis says, you have never come across somebody who is a mere mortal, right? We're certainly not machine. (laughs) We're certainly men and women, but we're also eternal, and we have eternity planted in our hearts. And temporal things, the things of this world, will never satisfy us. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The water that Jesus offers is salvation. It's the life of the Holy Spirit flowing within us. It's not just some sort of transactional exchange where we pray a prayer and we're saved. It's so much deeper than that. It's the abundant life that he's come to offer us. In John seven, so three chapters later, John again uses this. I mean, Jesus says it, so he makes sure to make note of it. In John seven, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people everywhere, Jesus proclaimed this in John seven thirty-seven through thirty-eight. On the last and the greatest day of the festival, right? So then the it's the it's the after party, you know. It's everybody who was somebody who was there. Jesus stood. We always think of Jesus just sort of like randomly in places being quiet. No, no, no. midst of, you know, I was down at Wells yesterday, you know, the March Madness, and it was packed. Crazy amount of people. Crazy amount of people. Imagine that kind of a scene. And Jesus stood and said, not in a quiet voice or even in a, you know, normal talking voice, said in a loud voice. So he stands up. This is why he was not just a good teacher. He stands up and he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Again, the irony of this is not lost on us. From the cross, the one who says, if we are thirsty to come to him and drink, he himself cries out, I am thirsty. Jesus, the source of living water cries out in desperate thirst. What does all that mean? Here's another truth. What we realize as we hear this cry is is that Jesus thirsts in our place. His thirst is for us on our behalf. He emptied himself so we could be filled up with his life. Jesus thirsts so we won't ever have to thirst again. That's why we can sing songs like if, More of you means less of me than take everything. Jesus, you already poured yourself out on my behalf. Let me pour myself out now so that you can fill me up. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, speaking of the water at the well. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Every other source we tap will leave us thirsty again. Everything we fill our lives with other than Jesus will leave us disappointed and thirsty and dissatisfied and frustrated and depressed and anxious. As Augustine said, we will be restless. Does anybody ever feel restless? I certainly have. And most of the time it's when I'm trying to fill my life with things other than Jesus, We will be restless until we find our rest in him. We will be thirsty until we quench our thirst in Jesus because he is our living water. The invitation then stands for us today. Let me go ahead and invite the worship team to come forward at this time as we get ready to close. For all of us who are restless, the invitation stands to come and find rest in Jesus. For all who are thirsty, seeking something to satisfy, the invitation is to come to him and to drink freely. Don't let that be sort of like a metaphor or abstraction or don't lose that, right? As though it's some sort of mystical expression that doesn't really have any teeth to it. You're like, well, that sounds good. I can come to him and drink freely, but what does that look like? I don't have time to go into all that this morning. You can happily email me or, or ask me. And I'm glad to talk with you more about it. But for all who are thirsty, seeking something to satisfy, the invitation is to come to him and drink freely. In the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, also written by John, same John who wrote the Gospel of John, we read this, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. That's the invitation that Jesus offers us today to come to him and drink. He drank the cup of sorrow and sin and judgment so that we could drink from the living water and the cup of salvation. He did this by becoming a man, not a machine. He's a man, but also God's that he can be the perfect Sacrifice, and he went to the cross. And that's what we celebrate each week as we receive communion. Let me invite the communion servers to come forward at this time. It's why we take communion. Remember that Jesus thirsted so we no longer have to. Just encourage you, if you don't know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, this morning is the morning to accept his invitation to come and receive his gift of salvation, the free gift of the water of life. We're all called to turn to him. When we do so, he will save us and change us forever by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we're thirsty. We realize that our thirst can only be satisfied in and through you. You're it, you alone have the water of life. You alone give us the living water that we need. Thank you, Jesus, that you bore our sins, that you thirsted in our place so that we would never thirst again. We come to you this morning. We receive these elements in faith and we thank you that we can drink freely from this water of life and we will never someday have to thirst ever again. Let us have our hearts always satisfied in you. Let us find our rest in you, Jesus. You are the way, the truth, and the life, the one and only. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.